My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by none other than Curtis Yarvin, aka Mensha Smolbug, the uh, Mac Daddy of Esoteric Posters, uh, an Ur blogger who uh, is, a, is a great inspiration to a lot of people in my circles. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you on today, Curtis. Uh, thank you. Um, pleasure to join you. And, re and you're recording from, um, where was it? Uh, it was um, um, Xinjiang or uh, Ghana or something like that? <laughs> it's Transylvania, uh, land Transylvania. of uh, ill repute. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old, old, old Sax. Are you in one of those old Saxon towns? The. Uh, you know, That's with, with the walls and uh... very well, uh, very well uh, cited. I'm I'm not in one of those towns. I'm in one of these a bit of Austro-Hungarian towns on the border. But uh, oh, nice. I'm I'm that's that's my uh, that's my lineage. My dad is from from that part from one of those enclaves, you know, where he only spoke German until he was I don't know he had to go to communist school or something. So and somehow uh, they somehow they survived the war because the, uh, there was there was a lot of ethnic cleansing uh, around there after World War Two, I believe. I mean, they survived or migrated or, you know, just skipped town before <laughs> anyone could get them. You know, that, that's one strategy. Um, yeah, my dad just, you know, he, he kind of, he played it cool. You know, he had a, a strange sounding name. That's my name. So no one really knew what was going on with him. He could have been, you know, Serbian, Slovak or something. So right, he, right, he didn't right, play up his right. ethnicity, but uh, right, it was, yeah, right. it was pretty chill. He, he, he made it out all right <laughs> from both communism and any, any ethnic cleansing that he was uh, subjected to. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. So today, I, um, as a lot of people who have been on my Twitter have seen, uh, there's there's a lot of questions. There are many questions, and I oh, want to structure no, this. And I'm, I'm being <laughs> interrogated. This is a real yes. Eastern European interrogation here. Oh my God! All right. This fine. is a format. <laughs> this is a format. So there are there are long sprawling questions where we can you know play, and then there is a um, there is a kind of quick fire round, just so I can you know get yes and no's and you know kind of fulfill people's curiosity about some things that include quite random things. So I think it, it's going to be fun. I promise. Uh, yes, I, I I I don't promise to answer all questions, but uh, you know I may deflect some, um, but. Uh... I'll try to uh, tell the truth, uh, so so help me my iPhone. Um, um, all right, <laughs> shoot, shoot, let's go. Perfect, cool. So the first question, my question, is um, how close are we? We know what what time is it now in in the cycle of our regime, and how close are we to um, this regime imploding and a counter elite rising? You know, what's uh... I, I think that's 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 very hard to know. I think that. It's really better to think in terms of, you know, decades than years, um, because even if it's not decades, you know, that would that would come as a sort of small miracle. And, you know, that would be surprising in the same way that the fall of the Soviet Union was surprising. But, you know, what I see is, you know, the reason I'm sort of so I, I don't know, I would call black pilled on that, but um, I sort of want to kind of dampen people's 
hopes and kind of, you know, uh, dreams on this subject, even in a way, is that, you know, whenever, whenever you discover sort of something new and you sort of realize, hey, here's this different way of seeing the world that I've just found. And it's a new way of seeing the world for you. And so from your perspective, the world is changing very rapidly because your own perspective is changing. Right. And so you go from, wow, you know, I, I was in this kind of normie world to, you know, I've been flushed down the giant tube, you know, and I'm now in the uh, uh, Morpheus spaceship. Right. And and you're just like you expect things to keep happening. And the reality is, you know, those dudes have been out there in that spaceship for a long time. Right. You know, and <laughs> and 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 especially it's like and, and so from the expectation that that kind of change is rapid proceeds a sort of a whole you can make a whole different set of errors that come out of that and those errors become strategic errors they become tactical errors they become historical errors you know it's like when you look at you know let's say a lot of the you know people who would call themselves you know anti-woke now in the like you know around the like Quillette IDW circles, you know, I was talking with James Lindsay for a while at this conference we were at, perfectly fine guy, you know, but the thing is, it's sort of necessary in this historiography that because the problem can be solved soon, it must be easy to solve. Because it's easy to solve, it must be superficial. And so you sort of go after these kinds of superficial targets or you feel somehow, you know, this leads you to certain strands in the Gordian knot, which you feel can be untied and untied relatively simply. And so you just go down the wrong path when you expect these things to be easy. Uh, moreover, you sort of go down the path of thinking much more offensively than you should, you know, and the reality is that sort of under any regime to exist is entirely sufficient and to exist is sort of what you're looking for and you become overly confrontational. And and I really, you know, if there's anything I've learned, you know, in the past 10 years, it's um, that being confrontational is is even worse than I thought. Um, and um, Is this a, so, a di direct reflection on, on James Lindsay's? Uh, <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I, you know, people. I mean, that, that's that's in some ways a different kind of confrontationalness. But um, um, the uh, yeah, no, no. I, I I don't like people can have flame wars on Twitter. That's fine. It's more like when you when you sort of one of the things you know. Let me expand on that. You know, this is probably going to answer. Hopefully, if I if I digress and answer a question you have later, um, well, uh, you can just skip that question, and so you won't have to interrogate me twice. Compare the answers. I love how you're already reading my my mind. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, so 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 you know the thing about basically being confrontational is that it sort of it it attracts the wrong kind of spirit and the wrong kind of mindset, and so you're essentially like you're participating in this kind of drug experience when you sort of excite people by by confronting the powers that be and so when you think of it as a simple problem you're always like oh here's something i can confront i'm going to drive like you know if i could basically take the western tradition and get rid of hegel um you know um sorry <laughs> i really don't mean to do this <laughs> 
a group of Frenchies. I mean, now I know now it's Hegel, but you know, I think he. Yeah, he, yeah, and, and, and that's <laughs> honest, honestly, and 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 that sort of sense of of um, you know, sort of desire to purify, or the feeling that I was in something that was basically holy that had been profaned was kind of my first experience of Western academia when I was going to Brown back in the 80s, right? And I was like, oh, what is this French philosophy shit? You know, this is all crap. You know, my tastes ran to like Mark Twain and Isaac Asimov and really sort of plain, very Voltairean, you know, um, um, kind of writers in general was really my early taste, you know, just kind of lacerating and very, very clear. And so whenever I encountered what seemed to me obvious, uh, you know, just intentional obfuscation, I was like, wait a minute, these people are charlatans, right? But I didn't really associate this, you know, charlatanry with the fundamental nature of the place. I thought of it as an exception. And when you think of it as an exception, naturally you think, oh, here's this exception that can be corrected, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, it's I think it's kind of the the killing baby Hitler fallacy. Uh, the killing baby <laughs> Hitler fallacy. That's a great name. <laughs> so, um, my next question is tied to community, um, and you you see a lot of these kind of hyper real communities forming online, and you know the, the meat space mm -hmm. becomes less relevant. Um, people are more disconnected, atomized. You know, this is this is part of the the big discourse now. Um, do you feel like there is uh, there is hope for in real life community? Um, how how may people approach that? Is there kind of a lever that we can pull? Do we have any any um, any white pills well, on the know, horizon? <laughs> you know, I, I'd encourage. Uh, there was a wonderful book that I read recently because it was republished by one of these little um, these little publishers that are springing up, which is a really really nice trend. Uh, I forget the which publisher this was. It may have been Antelope Hill, but I don't think it was. Uh, they're the ones with the best covers, however. Um, um, the uh, might have been Imperium Press, uh, and it's Fustel de Collange, the Ancient City, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing work. Uh, Fustel de Collange was a, a Victorian. He was a French Victorian, obviously extremely aristocratic, extremely reactionary. Uh, extremely learned. You go through the footnotes for the ancient city, um, and it's just uh, you know, it's just like this person has read the entire classical corpus. Okay, he's read everything right in in the original you know Greek and Latin, right? Because he's actually educated. And and it, here's this amazing book. Have you read uh, Fustel de Collange? Have you? you know no, but I've it? I've had it recommended to me by my multiple people, including yeah. Patrick Denine and Adrian Vermeule, very recently. So it's, it's on <laughs> my reading list. That's interesting. Well, you know, I'm trying I'm trying to spread the cult of Fustel in uh, Silicon <laughs> Valley as well. So so I think that you know um, this is. Uh, Good things are happening here. Um, um, certainly, you know, the cult of the Machiavellians has been doing quite well. Um, and, uh, I, you know, this book is really, it's, it should be in the canon. Uh, because what Fustel de Collange does is he essentially says, okay, you have this enlightenment image of Greece and Rome. And your enlightenment image of Greece and Rome is based on the late days of republicanism in both Greece and Rome, which are basically the late days of the greatness of Greece and Rome. And when, you know, you think of Athens as a democratic place, even Athens, not Sparta, Athens, when you think of Athens as a democratic place, basically you're taking the last like hundred years of Athens 
And that's not where the power of Athens came from, right? And so, you know, Fustel goes sort of all the way back to the Indo-European tradition and Indo-European religion and essentially asks, what is the city? What is the community? And comes up with this, um, essentially, the interpretation of the ancient city as an extension of the ancient family, which is essentially like your god is the family god. You know, it's very, you know, it's sort of to call it fascist is almost like fascism is like this caricature of the kind of ultra patriotism and ultra communitarianism that was expressed at an almost at really a completely religious level by the ancient peoples. And this is why sort of the Christian idea of the universal God is so strange. It was like the God is the God of the hearth, the God of the family. And um, it was very, um, um, you know, very concentric circles, essentially. Right. And, and so, you know, later sort of Greek democracy is essentially, you know, Greece kind of um, um, is the structured in decay. And um, when you realize that essentially, you know, the, the, you know, Greek democracy is the exception in Greek history, it's sort of late, really what you're, what, you know, the Greeks themselves believed was that the golden age was actually Homeric Greece. You arrive at this, um, you know, very BAP-like, uh, you know, worldview, uh, which of course, I mean, you know, BAP himself is obviously a very learned person as well, right? And, and um, so the, uh, I mean, yeah. So, so you're essentially looking at, okay, here is the, here's, here's what it means to be a community. Right. And um, it's like I was reading, um, actually, you know, who I've just gotten into, uh, you know, people will be shocked by this is Ruskin. Um, Ruskin, you know, is 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 in a way he's the er, uh, he's the er lib in a way, because Ruskin begets the Fabians who basically beget the kind of whole administrative tradition of the 20th century. But Ruskin is also a student of Carlyle. Um, and so. Um, you know, reading reading Ruskin, he um, he makes a point. Uh, this is unto this last, which is kind of the closest thing to, that Ruskin has to my my old favorite, the Latter Day Pamphlets. Um, and um, he makes this point. He's like, why do people um, throughout history have you know respect soldiers and have contempt for merchants? And um, um, I don't mean merchants in the internet sense. I just mean you know people in a merchant of a, of a mercantile you know background and, and profession, right? Um, um, and his answer is that merchants, by definition, uh, their action is entirely self-interested, and whereas soldiers are participating in a community where sacrifice for the community is expected, and so you know when I see an internet community or a virtual community of any kind, you know, um, 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 I, I was literally getting into this shit in the eighties, actually. Um, uh, the question that I have to ask is like, what is the depth of any such community? What is sort of the depth of like kind of collective sacrifice and collective engagement? How much do they work? How close to a cult are you? How close to worshiping the same gods are you? And I think that um, 
one of the things that you know you find when you ask this question, I mean, clearly, you know, humans in the modern world are capable of these kinds of things. There's a kind of energy in like Burning Man. There's a there's there's definitely a Fustel de Collange energy in Burning Man, right? And yet, you know, we're essentially postmodern people. And, you know, postmodern people are very different from pre-modern people. It's very hard to bridge that gap, even though you may have a certain kind of sympathy there. You know, it's like, you know, it's almost in, in a strange way, like, a you know, some Yale graduate going to like relate to the inner city or something. It's like, OK, I sympathize with you. Um, you know, I kind of want you on my back, but like I don't really speak the same language as you. Right. And and when you have this kind of postmodern perspective where you've sort of been through modernity and you understand what kind of how to go beyond modernity and then you're talking to people who are pre-modern and have not yet been through modernity, that's a difficult, you know, it's like when you relate to say someone like Orban in Hungary, you know, and like sort of traditional European populism, you're like, well, you know, in a way you kind of get it, but in a way you kind of don't. And, and bridging that gap, I, you know, I find is, is very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, that that kind of leads me to to another question because one of the one of the biggest contrasts that I've seen is between essentially the Anglo tradition and then you kind of have the continental tradition and then you have places like Eastern Europe which are completely apart and to me that I kind of to to me that boils down to in a way to kind of this game theoretic equilibrium where essentially you've been trained to defect in Eastern Europe it's just there's no yeah. way out of this you know the this prisoner's dilemma that we've uh, we've I don't know feudalized our way into Aut the Ottomans there, there are many ways to to lead to, to come to this right. point, you've but... always you've always had some strange emperor or some strange ideology yeah the second you come right. up for air someone comes up and then snatches your your little <laughs> you know little kingdom from out from under you um but I'm curious why do you think, you know, the solutions that would apply to the Anglo world, if there are solutions, if there is such a thing as solutions, mm -hmm. can they be translated in any way to to Eastern Europe for whatever reason? You know, you, you also have the the, the Hainal line discourse. That's another one. But there is, a, you know, is it possible yeah, to even think in those parameters? That's that, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think that the you know there's certainly i think that that when you look at the history of the soviet empire you get some clues as to that because although it's a very different situation in some ways you still have this sense you still have this informal empire which is something that has happened many times in history, right? It's like the Delian League. It pretends to be a league of equals. In fact, there's nothing Polish about the Warsaw Pact, you know? And, um, and so one thing that you see in the fall of the Soviet Union is there's this kind of rebound effect between the center and the periphery. And all of the world today is America's periphery, except arguably China, which has some self-confidence. Um, you know, but what happens in the fall of the Soviet Union is that the causality is central. And so you have basically this situation in which the center falls. And when the periphery sees the center falls, they're like, oh, that 
that's interesting. <laughs> um, and and they sort of realize that these kind of these strings that have been holding them in place have kind of snapped in a way. And when they see this snap, they realize, hey, wow, you know, you know, um, um, Elena Ceausescu, you know, is just some evil old hag, right? <laughs> you know, and um, and and that realization is is very very powerful. And then in turn, because the periphery is is much more unstable, then basically you have you know the wave washes in both directions, and so essentially you have when the center says, okay, periphery, you can do whatever you want. And East Germany is like, oh yeah, well, we'll just let people walk over to the West then because fuck it. <laughs> um, and then the people in the center see that and they're like, wait, we had an empire. And, <laughs> and, and the whole thing sort of starts to, it's like it starts to emerge into visible reality as it collapses. Like you see, you know, the Kraken, you know, kind of rises and as it, you know, and dies as it rises, essentially. And you're like, oh, wow, there's some big tentacles there because the tentacles are all falling apart. And so I think if you look back on, you know, what a, a sort of a, a Trump administration, a, you know, it's easy to say what a, a hypothetical Trump administration, which probably would have uh, not involved Donald J. Trump or would have involved him basically saying, okay, I'm going to go play golf and uh, I'll get someone competent in here. Um, and um, um, which he could still do in 2024 uh, if you're out there, Don, uh, you know, and, um, um, you know, but what an ideal Trump administration could easily have done is make it very, very clear. Um, and it was this would have to be made by sort of enormous tangible gestures that, you know, hey, Brazil, Brazil, we don't we don't care. You know, the Monroe Doctrine is over. We don't care who's in charge in Brazil. You know, to use a phrase from John Quincy Adams's original Monroe Doctrine address, this was the part for Europe, uh, you know, which I, I call the, the second Monroe Doctrine. Um, the government de facto is the government de jure for us. So what that means is, hey, Brazil, you want to military government you want to clean up those favelas go ahead be our guest we don't care we'll keep buying your bananas or whatever we oranges uh you know uh you want to restore the emperor you, you used to have an emperor it was cool you know you could have an emperor again whatever you want to go full communist go go bolshevik right you know like work with moscow we don't care you know and and the thing is that you know if you say that to all of these countries they have this memory of a time they have sort of a local historical memory of a time when they were much more autonomous and when you know if you look at for example like most people are like wow you know, america backed you know pinochet right you know well america didn't back pinochet so much as you know commit to not opposing pinochet <laughs> um and but if you look at allende versus pinochet um, you see that Allende is a much more American figure than Pinochet. If you look at their social networks, uh, you know, Allende has friends all over the fucking East Coast. Pinochet is a figure who is completely Chilean, who would be out of place even in Argentina, right? And, and so, you know, you have this natural tendency in which whatever is more local and whatever is more indigenous is also going to want to snap those strings. And so if you can credibly say to all of these countries, the, emperor, the empire has fallen and will never return, then it's pretty easy. 
moreover, there's a very, very easy way to do this, which is basically say, okay, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, there's this whole system of diplomacy that we have. We have this whole State Department thing, which I grew up in, um, whose business is to run these embassies and consulates all over the world. Well, in the 18th century, that was super necessary because we didn't have the internet, but now we have the internet. So if, um, you know, uh, Washington wants to send, say, something to Bucharest, it can send an email. It can be like, hey, Bucharest, you know, what's up? You know, you, there's this guy in jail. People are asking about him. Um, and if you basically say, we're pulling out of all our embassies, consulates, and bases, and we're just going to do business electronically, the message that that sends is tremendous. Because, of course, the actual role of the U.S. Embassy in Bucharest is not to, you know, uh, work with the Romanian government as a peer, you know, it's not to like be like, uh, oh, I, I think there's technically a treaty where if the U.S. and Romania are involved in a war, if Romania is attacked, the U.S. is obliged to defend Romania. Um, if the U.S. is attacked, maybe by Mexico, Romania has to send forces to keep the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 uh, these are the technical terms of the treaty. But in fact, you know, the business of the U.S. embassy in Romania is to supervise the government of Romania, right? And and so if you basically say, you know what, whoever is in charge in Bucharest, that's the government of Romania, you know, Iron Guard. What else, man? You know, <laughs> if that's what you're into, that's what you're into. Okay, man. You were always pretty weird, whatever. Right? You know, and, and, and you know, in fact, here's what we'll do. You know, how do we even know who's in charge of Bucharest? Well, it's very simple. We have satellites. You have QR codes. Uh, we're going to designate, you know, the main square in Bucharest, wherever it is. And uh, you're going to put a QR code there. And we're going to see it from space. And that, that'll be your email address. And that'll be the legitimate government of Romania for us. Right? <laughs> and so if you can take the square and hold the square, you're the new regime. And, and we'll direct our emails to you if we have any emails. We really can't imagine what we'd, we'd have to talk about. But um, <laughs> the, um, Aww, and so, you know, <laughs> if, you say, if you say that's basically your new foreign policy, um, you know, then the message that that sends is unmistakable. And the message that that sends to everyone in the periphery is that, or let's say, I mean, you know, Romania, great country, great country, never had any colonies, right? Okay, but then if you're talking to, say, France, you're like, hey, France, you know, our empire is over. And by the way, by the way, France, if you want your colonies back, that's between you and them. Um, and, uh, Algeria, lovely beaches. You can have it. Used to be part of your country. We stole it. You want it back? You can have it. You'll probably have to do some fighting, right? And 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 so you know that level of isolationism basically sends a message to everyone in France that if I'm an ambitious young person in France, previously the only way I had of getting ahead was to go up this ladder. But now there's this other ladder, which has basically been created, which is a new kind of regime in France. I could go up this other ladder instead. And that's sort of always the question that you want to ask when you're asking about 
who's in power. It's like if you ask historically, okay, let's say it's 1956. Would you rather be on Senator McCarthy's staff or Edward R. Murrow's staff? Well, if you were, it seemed like Senator McCarthy was doing pretty well for a while, but, um, you know, he seemed to be in the driver's seat. But if you were a young person on his staff, your career was over. And if you were on Edward R. Murrow's staff, you're celebrated and there will be a thousand people at your funeral. Right. And and so that understanding of saying, OK, here is another form of sovereignty that can exist here. And since a lot of people want it to exist, it can come into existence relatively quickly. The thing is that the reason, if you look at, you're sort of running in this scenario, let's say you look at, say, the regime of Franco in Spain. Um, Franco was a very indigenous figure. He was very Spanish. Um, you know, the Spanish regime today or, you know, the, let's say, Ireland in which, um, you know, I'm always surprised that these, like, you know, Catholic trad, you know, like the Rod Dreyers of the world don't talk m much more about um, the uh, Amon de Valera state in Ireland when it was basically a Catholic religious dictatorship, um, which is it was it was a working integralist state in the 20th century. And 20th century integralists don't seem to give a shit about it, even if they're Irish. What the fuck, right? Well, so, well now Google owns it anyway. They've they've given up. Google planted yeah, a flag. Google, in Ireland. Yeah, Ireland is basically a subsidiary of Google, right? <laughs> and and the um um it's essentially a tax dodge, right? And <laughs> um um and and so what you had in those times was but those regimes at the time, you know, they didn't plan to last only 30 years, right? They planned to last like every regime forever, but what they found was, you know, my mother was actually an au pair in Franco, Spain, of all places. You know, very, very sort of East Coast Aristo thing to do. And so she ended up taking care of the children, of the younger children of some Franquista admiral or something. You know, like imagine like the uniform this motherfucker wears, right? You know, and, um, and she's friends with the older daughter of, you know, the admiral who of course, because it's 1965 is a communist, right? You know, <laughs> and, and, and so you can see the future of Spain in essentially the young people of Spain are sort of, all young people are kind of tuned to climbing the ladder. You know, it's useless to admit that you're not, or, or to deny that you are, right? And so when you see um, kind of circulations of the elite, it's because a different ladder emerges or the and or the existing ladder is is very, very blocked. And what anyone could see in 1965 was that Franco wasn't getting any younger. Um, Europe was going through, was about to go through an enormous cultural revolution, you know, everywhere, basically the children of post-war Europe who'd imbibed the lessons of the teachers of post-war Europe who'd been installed by American tanks, you know, were growing up with these deeply Americanized values and they weren't going to stand for this old European shit. And so it was just, it was only a matter of time before those regimes crumbled. And so to sort of, to build, to run that, you can't run anything historically in reverse, but, you know, to do that over again in a way where you're saying, okay, now there is a vision of the future which is much more powerful and interesting than the vision of the future that, you know, uh, the, the current regime is offering. That's sort of what 
you know, and that revision that 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 has to that vision has to involve sort of a place for for people like us, you know, in the mind of someone who who's going to find it attractive and find it sexy. And and as sort of as long as that it was just much more sexy to be a communist in 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 1965 in Madrid than some kind of phalangist or something. Right. You know, yeah. like the blue division. Right. You know, um, and and no, no, you know, and, and so, you know, reversing that process is, is a matter of fashion and it's but it's fashion sort of follows power and, you know, whatever is powerful is sexy and there's sort of no getting around it. And so the way to create that revolution in the, you know, in the periphery is from the center. But what the periphery do, does with that is going to astonish the center. Does that yeah. make sense? And, and have an effect back on the center again. And that's the sort of bouncing wave back and forth that you saw with the unraveling of the Soviet empire. Long answer, but, you know, I do that. No, no, I, I, I like this answer. I like it. It's got kind of this uh, oracular vibe, uh, and you know, being in the periphery, I do, I do like to, to think that this, this is where, this is where the, the, the counter elite will, will spawn. Can I, can, can I tell one, can I tell one story related to that, which you know, explains sure. in some ways the way the world works? Well, you know, um, uh, growing up in the State Department, I discovered a number of things, uh, you know, about the way the world works, and one, one thing that most people don't know is that um, it's a perfectly innocent thing. No, no secret slaughters of, of, of child prostitutes or anything like this. Every Thanksgiving, every US embassy and consulate in the world has a party. The people who are invited to this party are of course the employees of the State Department and the consulate, and then everyone else in wherever they're located who is cool. And so if you meet someone at one of these parties, you know, a fellow Romanian, you're like, oh, wow, you know, Vlad, you know, I didn't know you were cool. Oh, <laughs> Mihai, I see you're cool too, right? You know, and and so, you know, that that is something that, you know, that's just sort of one of these elite bonding factories that the world is so full of. And that's what sort of constructs the, those kinds of, of rituals and ceremonies and institutions are what construct the the elites that we have today and you know one of the things that i'm i'm like when you imagine all of those institutions swept away you know until you imagine all of those institutions swept away you can't really imagine a world that is governed in a different way because one of the things one of the problems of sort of being confrontational at any level is you're like it's like these people who want to confront journalists, right? I'm like, dude, you know, suppose you can get this person fired. Do you, many, do you know how many people want their job? You know, like <laughs> orders, orders of magnitude, right? You know, like there's a huge line and, you know, it doesn't even matter. Maybe they're not as good, whatever, right? You know, maybe you're getting into the B team, you know, like it's so, it's so useless. And, and the thing is that what actually happens in a true regime change is that all of these old paths go away and they have to go away. They have to become completely null, null and void. And, and so when you imagine you're like, oh, we're going to reform this, we're going to fix that, you know, then you look at, you know, in some ways, 
in some ways, the fall of the Eastern Bloc is not a good example because many of its institutions in many countries survived. The illustration was by no means complete anywhere. When you look at denazification, um, you know, that was overdone in many ways. It was overly harsh. It was like, you know, uh, it's not a great example. It's not something Americans should be proud of. Uh, but you can't say it wasn't thorough. <laughs> and, and, well, I guess some communists say it wasn't thorough. But, you know, that was, um, they're talking about the post-1947 period, really. Um, and they're talking about the Cold War period when some of that was pulled back. But if you look at 45, 46, it's very, very harsh. And, and, and very, they're just like, we are going to have absolutely none of this shit. And, and that level without any of that harshness, you know, that level of institutional turnover is, is basically what you need. That also puts a limit on, that's a sort of totally different way of sort of doing business than the way that the Orbans and even to some extent the Erdogans of, of, of the world do business. Um, and one of the problems with those regimes is that they see themselves as temporary in a way. They don't really have a telos, maybe more so Erdogan, but would you agree, disagree with that? Like, where does Orban think he's going? You know, I mean, you'd, you'd be surprised how strong the, the, the Hungarian nationalism is. They're just a sliver of a country, like a, a smattering of people. But by God, do they have like a, an ethnos? Uh, the Treaty of Trianon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you'll, you'll never, never be able to forgive Woodrow Wilson for uh, for what he did. Uh, <laughs> all right. For more, more questions. Uh, I've digressed. More here. questions. Okay. Um. Religion. What is the future of religion in uh, the upcoming regime or in the crumbling regime as we see it, um, you know, as we said? Well, you know, I mean, religion in, you know, uh, um, religion today is uh, certainly in America is, you know, everything is is uh, is the same thing in a different skin suit. Right. You know, um, um, and um I don't know. Have you seen? Uh, have you seen? Uh, you know, Jude Law and the Young Pope. Are you a fan of the Young Pope? Do you know the Young Pope? I haven't watched it. I've I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. It's it's really it's really it's really quite good. Uh, and um and and the director uh, Paolo Sorrentino is amazing. I don't know if you've seen um uh, La Grande Bellezza is really his masterpiece. Uh, amazing, amazing film. He's really a, a fit successor to Fellini. And how the, how this film how this this uh, the young Pope got on HBO. I will never fucking know because it's, it's like completely unacceptable. Um, and, um, and, 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 you know, uh, Jude law really is, is this postmodern in a way, neo reactionary Pope, right? You know, he's, his, um, his basically stated mission in this is to eradicate homosexuals from the Catholic church. Um, uh, not to give away any spoilers, right. Uh, you know, but yet, you know, he's this kind of postmodern figure. Um, and, um, which is really lovely. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think it reminds us that, uh, you know, it's very hard, you know, it's very hard for a postmodern person to do anything pre-modern without it becoming to a certain extent a LARP. And, you know, LARPing is something that, you know, everybody's going to do a lot of in their twenties, frankly. And, and that's, that's normal. That's fine. Uh, you know, I keep it under control. <laughs> um, um, you know, but but it but it's still a LARP, and and 
it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, certainly if, if you've, if you've actually, you know, recovered a genuine faith, you know it, but you know, to be the postmodern condition will always be a somewhat different one. And you sort of want to proceed with a lot of caution and delicacy in a way in trying to restore it uh, because, you know, ultimately it gets into when as a postmodern person, you know, I hate this word, but I don't really have a better one. When as a postmodern person, you're dealing with pre-modern people, you almost sort of feel this desire not to kind of contaminate or damage them. You know, it's like you're dealing with here in America, the Amish, you know, you're just like, um, um, like uh, the last thing uh, I want to do with Amish is give their kids little plastic, you know, phones that they'll get addicted to <laughs> or something, right? You know, and um, uh, like the people who drop like phones on North Korea, you know, for with, with balloons, right? You know, and and the, the, these eleven-year-olds will be in, in the in the woods with their little phone watching porn, you know, and <laughs> uh, hor- horrifying, horrifying thought, and 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 so you know, in a way, I'm just like. I, you know, the idea of sort of bothering these people with my LARP is a little disturbing to me. At the same time, you know, sort of religious psychology is is very natural in humans. Uh, I certainly thought about trying the LARP of raising my kids in a religious way. Uh, you know, it's, it's way too late for that. But it would just be this sort of strange LARP, right? You know, and, um, um, you know, so I don't think that... The thing is, in a way, religion in the modern world is a kind of endangered species. And most people sort of in an enlightenment sense, when you hear that, you know, you're sort of taught to think they're an endangered species. You're just taught to think about them the way Americans used to think about the passenger pigeon. Like, let's great. Let's finish them off. You know, <laughs> who's the first to get the last one? Right. You know, and I'm like, no, this is actually an endangered species. And, you know, like actually your first lesson in is not to like, you know, capture it and breed it in giant herds, but like just stop fucking with it. Right. <laughs> and um, the, and so, you know, anything that amounts to kind of fucking with these people is something, you know, it's just too much like the infiltration of them that's been practiced so extensively in the 20th century, where you have all these, you know, basically communists pretending to be Catholics, right? Um, and I don't know that anybody knows the full depth of that. <laughs> and um, the, uh, so, uh, you know, as they, uh, you know, one thing, I forget where I read this was, uh, Someone said uh, in the Victorian area that there were four great pillars of reaction in um, in the European world, and these pillars were the English House of Lords, German General Staff, the Vatican, and the Economie Francaise. Um, I think the Economie Francaise is still, you know, kind of ticking along to some extent, right? And um, the others, uh, you know. Um, um, and so I'm just like, you know, the first, the first thing to do is stop burning shit. And so in a way, when you say, okay, I'm going to like infiltrate this thing and use it as a tool or like use it as like, you know, a totem in some sense, I'm just like, man, you know, that's, that's yeah. like do, more do 20th need, century behavior than you might realize. Do we need reservations for these people? 
Uh, yeah, I think we need. I think they need their own reservations. I, I'm yeah. I'm a big reservation fan, but it, you know it has to actually work. Like it shouldn't. You know, it's like the South Africans had this idea of okay, we have basically two civilizations here. We need reservations, but you know it kind of turned into like on the res essentially. And um, if you're gonna do that with human beings, you better fucking do it right. Yeah, yeah. That that seems to be the the case, you know, because a uh, a lot of people are talking about separation in many different contexts: separation, segregation, you know, um, enclaves and creating states and states. Yeah, I, I think I think that's just that's that's a result of obsession with geography. I think that uh, you know the way that you actually do that is just that you recognize people's self-selected status and you're like, Oh yeah, you're a red American. Your kids go to the red school. Right. You know? And like, why the hell? Like, would you be like, no, no, your kids go to the blue school and get all the blue shit. Right. You know, what are you like, you know, you're still trying to put society in a blender. No, it's just like you, you know, you identify as part of this community. You want the community to be, you know, as much as possible, like sort of financially self-sustaining, you want it to develop, you know, as much as possible, you want to create an environment where these kinds of communal ties naturally grow, rather than naturally being minced up constantly. Um, You certainly want to establish the principle that parents can choose what tradition their children are educated in, Um, you know, and you know, and that implies basically saying, oh, you're a citizen of this tribe. And but even then, one of these tribes is basically the postmodern tribe of, you know, libertarian individuals like me. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not a, I'm not a member of any red tribe, you know, and and so it's so it's not really so much as, you know, political as as communal. And it's just a matter of saying, OK, we're going to you know, let you maintain your sort of own tradition. As far as geographic segregation goes, like, what's the purpose of that? Like, one group causes more car accidents than the other. Like, you know, you shouldn't really be having, like, systemic crime or anything, right? You know, like, there's no, you know, um, um, cooties. Um, I mean... Not not you know, to you, because you're a libertarian, but ask, ask someone who's a bit more... Uh, yeah, well, you know, cooties, <laughs> I mean, disease is certainly a real thing, right? You know, um, um, litter is a real no, thing. No, but, like, um, you know, m- mimetic disease, mimetic disease that, you know, people well, don't mimetic want... mimetic disease. No, yeah, I, I think that basically... Uh, um, you know, let's say you're a Mormon. I think that, you know, the Mormons are a great example of a community like this. You know, Mormons don't need to be like confined to like some kind of like Mormon ranch with like barbed wire to keep the Mormons out or the Gentiles, the Gentiles out of the Mormons in, right? You know, like Mormons live among us. Like there are, you know, probably Mormons within a few, <laughs> few hundred yards of me, right? You know, and, and yet I don't feel any like kind of miasma of Mormon mimetic, you know, uh, you know, memes coming over the fence to like, teach my children to find some golden plates right you know and 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 the mormons have this amazing communal structure i'm like you know when i when i talk about you know these you know these people who want to form intentional communities i'm like fine okay so how much is everybody in this community going to tithe to the to the to the community you know how let's start with the mormon 10 percent, right you know and they're like oh, yeah I, well you know i don't really want to sell my crypto you know um, <laughs> i'm just like you know uh, you know um um in the words of the great bronze age pervert you're gay right you know and uh, the um um so so you know and you know it's fine like you know uh, it's fine to be gay but you should know you're gay right and and you know that's that's where the sort of danger of of larping comes from i'm like great you know have communities 
you know, have a blast, be yourselves. Just don't, don't think that you are anything, but you, what you are. Don't actually think that you're some like Indo-European tribe, you know, crossing Scythia in wagons. Right. You know, (laughs) and, and this is not what you are. And, and so certainly, you know, libertarianism for postmodern individualists is the right form of government for postmodern individualists who live in a postmodern way. Um, great, actually, for those for those people, it should be more progressive. It should be more libertarian, right? You know, but this is exactly the reason why, say, Elizabethan England had different laws for no than for nobles and, as, as for commoners. And so, yeah, you need to, you know, if you're a Mormon, you know your children should be going to Mormon school. That should not like cost you extra, like paying the fucking Mormon tax, like the fucking jizya, right? Your children should be going to Mormon school. They should be growing, growing up as Mormons. And, you know, if they turn out to have like some like, you know, fucked up gender identity disorder or something, yeah, you know, probably Mormonism is not the right place for them. They should probably move to San Francisco. And, and, the, um, and that's like, you know, one of the things that the Amish have done so well is that they have this escape protocol. Right. And so it's like if you don't fit into this traditional society, you know, fine. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I think the Amish traditional society would be much healthier if they had, um, you know, sort of more of an Amish kind of leadership class and intellectual class. I don't think there are any Amish intellectuals. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, it's funny. Do you know the origins, the historical origins of the Amish? They're, they're Mennonites, and the Mennonites were originally Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were the people who did the Munster Rebellion, which was like um, something out of like Pol Pot, you know, uh, but in the 16th century. And um, um, this insane like cult republic that took over the whole city of Munster. Um, you know, and they evolved into the Amish and the Amish have what works about being Amish is that they're so good at basically being non-confrontational. They're like, we don't even vote in your fucking English elections, because basically if we voted in your fucking English elections, people would start to give a shit about us. And we don't want that. And, and, and that's, you know, that's just such great advice for all dissidents. Like, you know, people would start to, you, you actually, you don't want the world to give a shit about you. You know, it's like recently, there's been the spate of attacks on on Substack. They're not like they don't go after me. They go after like Jesse Single and and you know all these people on the edge of legitimate discourse. Um, I get ignored, which is exactly what I want. And and the um um and you know and in exchange for that, I'm like I don't you know I don't cause trouble. I don't bother them. I don't. And that's exactly what the Amish do. And that's sort of where. So you don't need necessarily physical reservation. You just need to say, okay, you know, um, let's face it, we're not living in a homogenous country and we're not living in a country that can be homogenized. It has these different groups of people. They're real. They exist. And the thing to do is basically to recognize them, let them kind of govern themselves, restore themselves and and, you know, kind of, you know, restore some some self-confidence and, you know, that means essentially that you can't be saying to these groups, oh, we're going to take, you know, we're going to take your kids and we're going to, you know, teach them, um, um, you know, our bullshit. Uh, we're going to take your your best and brightest and we're going to send them to our schools and then bring bring them home, you know, take them away from you um, to destabilize <laughs> your communities. Right. You know, no, you can't be doing that shit. Right. And 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 that's um, 
you know, that that applies to sort of all traditional communities. But once you're post-traditional, there's basically, you know, no systemic help for you. Um, and <laughs> and that's um, that's that's a reality which all of our all of us, uh, you know, post-traditional people who are all individuals have to cope with in our own individual way. But we can't pretend to not be what we are. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm uh, kind of to, to track back to the Substack subject. I thought that was really um, interesting because you said you're you're not bo- bothering anyone, but it's do you think that's that's the source of you not being attacked, or is it that they know that you're you're not a good target because you know you you'd you'd know how to fight back one, and you're not looking well, for legitimacy in their system. You're not looking yes, for them yes, to approve yes, of you. Both, both both of the both of those. I mean, looking for legitimacy in their system is kind of the essence of what I would describe as confrontationalness, or it's one essence okay. of that. Because you're basically saying, you know, essentially you're you're kind of fighting them in detail, and so you're basically saying, okay, you're you know this is bad, this is wrong. Um, and and when you basically when you sort of pull back, they're not really equipped to defend this whole system. They don't even think of it as a system. They don't, you know, they're like fish who don't have a theory of water, right? You know, and so when you start talking about their theory of water, you want, you know, you want to be a difficult target essentially for the two minutes hate. And the way to be a difficult target for the two minutes hate is you have to you know there's you know the, you know the great the great joke of the bear in the running shoes i'll no. tell it anyway so <laughs> there's a couple of hikers um um and uh, they're they're wandering in the wilderness and um you have bears uh, there but I, I believe they're not very aggressive bears in romania um and yeah very yeah they're, they're uh, chill <laughs> they're pretty chill <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we have, yeah, uh, we have black bears where, where I am. They're, they're also pretty chill, but the bears. Um, um, but um, um, the, um, you know, the hikers uh, are wandering in the wilderness and they encounter a bear and the bear, you know, starts to come at them. And one hiker sits down and, and starts to put on, take off his hiking boots and put on his running shoes. And the other hiker's like, what are you doing? And the hiker with the running shoes is like, well, I don't have to be faster than the bear. I just have to be faster than you, right? And and so you know when you're essentially um, a dissident, you know defense is not a matter of being faster than the bear. Nobody can be faster than the bear. Uh, you know dissidence uh, is a matter of you know being faster than all the the dumb people. And regrettably, there are always a lot of dumb people. And when the number of sort of targets of dumb people increases, that although it kind of excites the bears and creates kind of a bear feeding frenzy, which is a little bit dangerous. Um, it also kind of leads, you know, one of the things that most people like don't reflexively don't understand about this system is that it's really not centralized. It really has no, there's no central command and control, which is very, very counterintuitive. Yeah. Counterintuitive and very different from the Eastern European situation. So everything we sort of know about being a dissident from the Eastern European situation, you know, assumes that there's basically some kind of central, you know, force there. And certainly if you were an influential intellectual of any kind in dissonant intellectual in Eastern Europe, you know, there's like a team of people, you know, devoted to fucking with you, right? You know, and, and, and that's not the case here. What you have is a bunch of agencies that are bureaucracies, uh, some are governmental agencies, you know, some are not. And they're basically uh, devoted to finding funding by sort of playing up a certain kind of menace. And um, you want to not fit that narrative. 
never never fit the narrative of the the state's narrative of its enemies always you know skip away from fitting that and so you essentially want to be a very inedible target you want to be like okay you know if you start chewing on me are you promoting me like maybe you're promoting me like what do you what do you bite on first what do you like why you know why are you promoting the relevance of this person you have to like you know and so you essentially have to you know, you have to put yourself in a position where it's clear that maybe you're scoring an own goal here. And and you don't really, <clears throat> moreover, you're mudd- muddying the narrative a lot because basically what you're saying is that the enemies of the state are people like this, which is always what you're doing when you publish a story. Well, you know, like, you know, that's sort of the last, you know, as long as you don't fit that stereotype, you're sort of the last person that they want to promote as you know their sort of official enemy they want to promote the worst people um and so when you're not the worst people they're just like no this this isn't right this isn't and if they were your enemy they would actually realize in a strategic sense that you're the best people are more dangerous than the worst people but they're not your enemy they're just predators they you know and as predators, which is sort of their, you know, follows their bureaucratic tradition, they know sort of very well that, you know, this is just not a very edible prey species. It's still a prey species. And as a prey species, basically, if you have an enemy, you know, you want to counterattack that enemy. You want to confront that enemy. You want to. But as a prey species, basically, if you're a buffalo, your only concern with lions is that the lion not eat you. Like, you know, you're, you don't like go out hunting lions. You don't eat lions. Lions are not your food. (laughs) Um, um, Your concern is that you not become a lion's dinner. And, you know, um, um, certainly, you know, every kind of PR mistake I've made in the past, and I've, I've sort of made a few, is basically, you know, sort of mistakes of just like, you know, getting involved with lions in the wrong way. You just, your goal, your only goal is the not to be the lion's dinner. And mm-hmm. and as long and as you how sur- do you make yourself inedible? Is there a strategy? Just reject the um, framing completely. Yeah, or- reject 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 the framing. Be extremely non-confrontational and don't fit the narrative. Be someone that basically you know can't be described in the way that I mean. Well, as sort of anyone can be described as as anything, but the the sort of uh, you know truth is always a constraint on these people. They always have to they can bend that constraint, but they always have to deal with it. And so, you know, to like, you know, in a sense, the, um, I don't know if you, if you ever read the great Henry Harpending, uh, you know, African Buffalo story in which he, um, um, Harpending, the great anthropologist who worked with Greg Cochran, uh, a name you might know, um, you know, was worked in Africa for many years and, um, you know, eventually was with a Bushman and a buffalo was truculent. And so they killed the buffalo and the buffalo was completely inedible. It was like eating a piece of wood, right? Um, it's just all this like, you know, pure collagen, essentially. <laughs> um, and, you know, you might be able to boil boil it for a week and eat it. And, you know, the equivalent of that collagen in sort of a, a dissident is, you know, every fiber of your body has to be just amazing. Every fiber of your body has to be completely non-confrontational and harmless. Everything you do should look good. And, you know, essentially once you're in this position where basically everything you do looks good, um, it's just like, ah, you know, I have to turn this thing that, you know, 
I have to admit looks good into something that is like the two minutes hate of the day. Well, you know what? As a journalist, I'm, I could go hunt a zebra, right? You know, there's a lot of zebra around and I have to deal with this fucking big ass thing with fucking horns, you know, and who writes these things that are like 7,000 words long. Like, yeah, I'm just like, no, like, you know, actually I don't want to deal with this. Right. And so, and those decisions are made individually. And, and so when people have to, like, those are not collective centralized decisions. And so, you know, if there was a collective authority, he would be like, you know, no, you know, Agent Yonish, you must go after the buffalo, right? You know, I don't care if you don't think the buffalo is good to eat, like take down the buffalo. I know you can do it, right? You know, (laughs) and, and that's not the way our system works. And so if you model our system as, you know, this system, I mean, there was always exceptions. Every every actor in the system is random. But if you essentially, you know, just avoid provoking it in any way and you are absolutely inedible, you'll have, you know, you'll be pretty good at, at defending yourself. Does that make sense? Does that, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Follow, follow from it, your experience as well? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my experience is very short. I'm, I'm, I'm just about to make all the mistakes. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I do think you know living living in in the armpit of a periphery is uh it does help you know at least minimizes stalker <laughs> stalker damage. Sure. <laughs> but um yeah I'll move on to my next question which is a stabby question because you promise you promise that things would a calm stabby down. Stabby question. Stabby question because it's it's confrontational. This is about as stabby as I get. So you yeah, know, brace yeah. yourself. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You promise that yeah. things would calm down <laughs> once Biden was in office. I think that things, doesn't seem. I think I think that think uh, the way I think that you know. Uh, um, let me be clear about um, you know first of all like this is come on this is two months and let me be clear about basically what. I already see and and what I think I predicted, Uh, you know, other people may think differently. I I hate going back and reading my own material, so I'll just let them think what they want. But um, the uh, what you see is essentially a combination of the acceleration of bureaucratic energy and the loss of emotional energy. And the emotional energy is the leading indicator and the bureaucratic energy is the lagging indicator. And so you're going to see more and more of this sort of stale kind of bureaucratic tripe. Um, you know, sort of coming down the path. And, you know, if, if you measure, for example, you know, like like the degree of like Twitter repression, right? The degree of Twitter repression, like there's like a th- clearly a thermometer of like Twitter re- repression. And, you know, I would love to, to know, you know, what causes the Twitter weather, right, to go up and down <laughs> and, and how, you know, like, um, um, you know, how much how much of it is purely algorithmic? You know, are they just saying we're going to just, you know, use an algorithm to find the shit posters? You know, who the hell knows? Right. But um, um, it's it's I mean, it's sort of interesting because, um, you know, I think Bronze Age Pervert was suspended once. I, I know he was suspended once, uh, but that was a long time ago, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Saylor, never been suspended. Never, yeah. never. I post under oh, for for two weeks name. once because he didn't want to delete a tweet. Oh but... yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean suspended. I mean, sus- I mean, quote suspended. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, basically taken out and shot in the back of the neck and dumped in a ditch and sucked <laughs> with gas and burnt. Right. You know. And and so you have this like the weird totalitarian, like this weird like virtual totalitarianism LARP where you know you're on Twitter and like you go to someone's door and you, and there's just like a notice like you know this citizen has been seized by <laughs> the. Uh, 
Do not attempt to contact. And, um, citizen, you are now being recorded. And 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 so it has this kind of creepy totalitarian vibe. And and that's why, um, you know, obviously real name posting on, on Twitter is this kind of a high wire act, you know, in a way which um, I both uh, recommend and recommend against. Um, it sort of depends what you want to do with your account, right? And yeah. and um, the you know the so so that's kind of a bureaucratic effect, and you know the the kind of bureaucratic persecution that any of us, including me, may be subject to, uh, you know, um, and is 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 ramping up in general, and what's ramping down is basically like if you go, for example, and you look at say a good thermometer of kind of mainstream a mainstream leading indicator um is a site i've frequented for many years and you know got finally got fed up with being banned from about 10 years ago but i still lurk on there which is hacker news and one thing that you see is that basically you know the temperature of that can be measured by you know sort of moderation moderation like like community mod votes one thing you see is that basically the in that thermometer is that the sort of support the emotional elite support for you know this like massive censorship campaign is draining away so you basically look at you know i can't tell you how many stories i've heard of people who are like my woke sister was like what the fuck is up with this dr seuss thing right and so you know you have these basically bureaucratic decisions that keep this bureaucratic energy of this thing keeps rolling forward but out there in the real world people are looking at me and just like what what dr seuss because he used the word Eskimo, right? You know, what's wrong with Eskimo? I had an Eskimo pie just the other day. Did they, did they change the name? Are they actually Inuit pies now? I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah. in any case, you know, so, so that combination of basically here is this force that is in some ways getting stronger, but it is not getting cooler. It is losing its coolness rapidly, and it has basically President you know, Joseph R. Brezhnev, you know, on TV, like mumbling and being about as charismatic as, I mean, Chernyenko, right? You know, I mean, uh, I think Brezhnev was a little more, more charismatic, actually, but um, he had these eyebrows. And uh, the guy, you know, um, um, you know, and so you have, from my perspective, from the perspective of, you know, here, you know, I'm a dissident and I guess even a professional dissident, um, you know, from my perspective, I see when I see sort of the waning energy, I'm like that corresponds in a way to the to an increase in the energy available for people who are just utterly fed up with all this shit. And and that's, you know, that's a growing set and that's not necessarily you know, aligned with like red versus blue. That's, you know, there are many, many people who are like, oh, wow, yeah, I, I live in a big city and I, I like the ethnic food and, you know, I feel a sense of universal brotherhood. But what's up with this Dr. Seuss thing, right? And and that, you know, that's, that's you know, just from a purely self-interested perspective, that's my audience. And so when I see the forces that grow that audience growing, I can't help but be a little kind of optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that kind of brings me back to, to what you said in the beginning that, you know, 
there, there might be a bit of an echo chamber effect where, you know, you see these forces growing around you, but you've placed yourself yeah. in the middle of these forces. So it looks like, <laughs> oh my God, the tide is shifting. All my friends love this shit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a small, it's a small, it's a small tide, but, uh, you know, it's certainly, uh, you know, is, is it growing? Yeah, it's growing. I mean, it's, you know, you just have to be, um, you know, uh, you have to be patient, man. And, um, yeah, the, yeah, you uh, have to be and yeah. adopt the the Curtis Yarvin brand historical perspective. Place yourself outside of uh, the maelstrom, and and observe. Yeah, yeah, and just and just and just you know be like, wow, this is you know this is some crazy shit that's going on, and crazy shit has gone on in the past. You know, your your Romanian history is full of of wonderful crazy shit. Um, yeah, it <laughs> continues apace. Uh, you know, we've got we've got yeah, crazy yeah, shit happening yeah, every yeah, day well, here. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So this is this is the next question is from uh, my friend Indian Bronson. Uh, and uh, uh, what is necessary for human elites to really give a shit about their charges uh, on a scale that, uh, you know, is beyond their immediate family? Is there any in incentive that would uh, make elites uh, their more... charges, their charges? That's an interesting word. Um, you know, one of the interesting historical phenomena uh, in European history is that of the absentee landlord and one thing that I mean, you know, the answer to this question is, is basically obvious. One thing that the the uh, kind of precipitated the downfall of what what's called Protestant ascendancy Ireland is the is this phenomenon of absentee landlordism, where you were in theory the lord of some you know district or castle or whatever, and instead you just like let your guy manage it and lived in London and you know went out to Ascot or whatever the fuck, right? You know, and um um and and you became this like degenerate Tristafarian, right? And and of course such a person had no social connection whatsoever to the motherfuckers who were paying their rents and their little you know cottages or whatever in the muck right um and these are people that are taking care of their cows that are making the butter that's sold at the market that you know pay for their the horse that you know places second at ascot right you know and and this is this is a very dysfunctional fucking relationship right and so in a way one can sympathize a little bit i always try to sympathize with libs um, you know, one can sympathize even a little bit with the libs who are like, like motherfuckers, this is a very dysfunctional fucking relationship, right? And here you have this like established church in Ireland, which is the official religion of Ireland. Um, and it's not even the religion of like 5% of Irishmen. Like what the hell, right? This is like weird colonialism shit. And and that's in, a, in some ways where the critique of colonialism developed was in this Irish home rule movement, which of course eventually ends up being driven by London rather than Ireland. Um, so, you know, how do you sort of reverse that or change that is like, you know, it's like, I mean, forget Mormons, the people that really had this, uh, you know, kind of sectarian elite thing mastered um, in the lives of those now living were the Catholics in America who had this whole alternate world of Catholic schools and Catholic, you know, religious hierarchies, Catholic bishops, you know, and these people, you know, at the top of this hierarchy who rose up through the hierarchy, uh, you know, became significant players because they could go to mass and be like, you know, oh, vote for O'Leary, he's a good man, you know, <laughs> um, and um, they were players, right, you know, and, and, and they were, that was an elite hierarchy to aspire to, you know, it's impossible to imagine a young man from like the Catholic of, of unbounded promise from like Fishtown in Philly being like, Oh, I got to become a, go to Fordham so I can become a Cardinal, you know, like what the fuck. Right. You know? And, and so, 
in a sense, like restoring, you know, if you're an elite that doesn't have contact with um, your charges, call them what you will, then, you know, you develop this, this kind of reckless attitude and you start sacrificing these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's, there's any practical approach to, to <laughs> reintroducing it. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's a regime complete problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, that's, that's fine. You know, you're, you're not here to solve all this stuff. You're, you're a describer of, well, of, of horrors. So we'll, we'll, we'll solve it in the next regime. Um, exactly. but, all right, so next question. I've got a next question. Um, this is also from, from a friend of mine. I'm just you know, helping my friends here uh, find answers to their problems. Uh, this is from Rocco, a father of the Rocco's Basilisk. Um, are you mm. open to the idea of rule by, in parentheses, crypto smart contracts rather than rule by a physically embodied king? Is there... uh, well, you know, the problem with, uh, you know, that's that's what we call uh, in uh, computer science an AI complete problem. And, um, you know, the uh, given, uh, I mean, I've written smart contracts, uh, you know, Ethereum is uh, has uh, roughly the, uh, you know, roughly the power of a, of a digital watch from 1985, and it costs <laughs> as much as a digital watch from 1985, uh, you know, and um, um, so, you know, the idea of... Um, you know, the idea of AI complete is one thing, then the idea of AI complete on the blockchain is kind of another uh, kind of, you know, quantum uh, quantum exponential uh, leap there. Um, you know, the essential, you know, but the problem is in a way even worse than that because, um, you know, the, the uh, you know, there's this influential book that Lawrence Lessig wrote about 20 years ago uh, called Code or Laws Code or something like that. Um, and of course it made the, uh, this same obvious analogy between law and code laws are literally called codes. Um, and what of course we find is that law in that sense is sort of merely a backbone of procedure that has to be coupled with some exceptional power. And in reality, we say that the judge is enforcing the law, but of course the judge is enforcing whatever the fuck the judge wants to enforce. And no one has ever devised a situation, you know, not only is no one, essentially what you have to have to have government that is completely by procedure, which is essentially sort of desire to have government by procedure comes out of the same sort of un, literally unruly desire not to be ruled, to have no one in charge. And people come up with kind of various formulas for this and they're all cope. And um, um, the, um, so to avoid this cope basically <laughs> is to realize that all these systems of procedure eventually, ha- you know, inevitably have an exception of some sort. There is always in any system, there's no imaginable system of sort of control of humans that does not contain an exceptional component. And in that case, when you say, okay, rule by smart contract or rule by, you know, AI smart contract, uh, rule by AI complete, as you, do you know the term AI complete, it means basically a smart, you know, anything, any problem that's AI complete is a problem that requires something that can think as well as a human. And, um, you know, at present, really doing a good job of folding clothes remains AI complete. <laughs> um, it's actually really hard to deal with fabric um, and for robots to, to deal with fabric. And, and um, so the, uh, I think, you know, and, and so that's a measure of how, you know, difficult 
we are we're at the level of here's something that you could teach a chimp to do um and you know fold chimp versus robot for folding clothes that would be an interesting contest actually um and uh you could have it every year uh beat the chimp um and and the um um in any case, you know, going from that to sort of becoming the supreme, the supreme overlord who decides the exception in Schmidian terms is, uh, it's quite quite a leap, and I don't think it's sort of in the in the world of things that it's realistic to think about, uh, you know. But we can go one step further than that and say that even if we had an AI, complete AI that was much much smarter than a human, I think it would have great difficulty in occupying and even sort of retaining this position, unless you go full Skynet and give it direct cryptographic control of all the weapons. In which case, I kind of recommend against that. But um, <laughs> the uh, um, but in but but unless you're doing things that way, you know, sort of all rule happens by essentially is a social process of convincing, um, you know, the ruled that this is someone to follow. And one, one that requires what psychologists call a theory of mind, mm -hmm. which requires you to actually, you know, empathize with the person on the other side. One thing that's well known in management theory that most people don't know is, you know, I think the military did these studies and found that if there's an IQ gap, of more than 15 points between the, the officer and the people he directly supervises, the, the command relationship can't really form. Maybe 15, it may be more like 20 or 30, but there's definitely a level at which they just don't fucking understand you. And you can't really, the theory of mind, and you know anyone who's been around smart kids has seen this, they basically just don't have a theory of mind that lets them understand normies. Actually, the, the disconnection goes in both directions. And so when you have this AI, which is not even human at all, forgetting its IQ, which is, you know, let's say it's infinite, uh, people don't understand how it thinks. And because they don't understand and can't understand how it thinks, they can't really form an emotional bond that allows them to serve it. Maybe they worship it as a god, but you're getting into some really weird shit here. <laughs> and, yeah. and you know, I don't think that's where Roko wants to go. Yeah, um, I, I have that feeling as well. And I think the, the, the alternative that I keep hearing about this idea of, you know, being ruled by machines, being ruled by AI is that the, the quality of stimulus that's going to come from, you know, the basilisk or whatever Leviathan AI that we're going to construct uh, is going to be essentially numbing. It's going to just, you know, it's, it will change the nature of the relationship of, of the rule. It's well, going to be I mean, yeah, I the mean, infinite slop machine where you disconnect <laughs> and that's it. It's essentially the matrix, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the scenario. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that depends on the, you know, the objectives of the AI, but you know, it's, it's like, it's another, it's, it's, I think it's interesting to see the sort of the degree of the depth of, you know, forgive me for calling it a cope, but I, I think it is a cope <laughs> in which basically, and I remember like, you know, as a libertarian, you're really a victim of this cope, you know, and I was I really would have called myself a libertarian for many, many years. You're basically like, you sort of see the beauty of this system that doesn't have this, you know, human element and especially doesn't have this hierarchical human element that seems distasteful to you and this is because as a libertarian you're basically a disobedient child at heart 
and you probably were a disobedient child as a young person, and <laughs> you basically still have that attitude, uh, which is just the wrong, you know, uh, I mean, is a terrible attitude. Uh, there's, there's a great, I've, I've inflicted this, this saying on my children a few times. Um, there's this great saying, which is an old saying of a, a Prussian pre, pre-20th century general, which is, uh, those who wish to command must first learn to obey. And until you basically learned that skill of kind of following and obeying, which comes so unnaturally to a person like me, which I don't really have, you know, um, but which I sort of very much respect in a kind of intellectual meta tradition, uh, you know, until you have that ability, uh, you're still a child in a way. And part of the old, a large part of the old system of education was to basically impart that skill to adults so that they wouldn't be dysfunctional in large organizations, right? <laughs> and so, you know, you have this this group of basically dysfunctional people who don't really fit together in any sense except the um, sort of, you know, Carlisle's phrase, uh, the only nexus between man and man is cash. You know, they sort of fit into this kind of libertarian cash economy as kind of individual contributors. And their, even their ideal form of, of company is a decentralized, you know, is a flat management structure. They know this can't work. They keep trying it, <laughs> um, you know, but they basically want it to every time a person with this mindset sees a way to do things. And there are sometimes, you know, excellent ways to, to use this technique. Every time they see a way to do things with a crowd instead of a structure, they're like, ooh, we could do things with a crowd. I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, you do it with a structure, right? You know, <laughs> and and but a structure involves this idea of commanding and obeying. It involves this kind of central point. It involves humans following the orders of other humans, and that's just very distasteful to these, you know, pathetic motherfuckers that we are these days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sounds uh, <laughs> sounds a bit like a <laughs> like a dead end until we we teach ourselves yeah. Prussian Prussian. Um, What's that called? Mind frames or, or thinking patterns? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the impression mindset. Yes. Uh, um, um, I um, want question. to also, yeah, I want to ask you about the uh, fertility issues that people are encountering nowadays. It's uh, it's even called the fertility crisis, fertility collapse. You well, know? Uh, you know the way the way the way to uh, you know there's that's that's a uh, that's a a, a purely. Uh, um, a purely personal problem, um, you know, the <laughs> very um, libertarian uh, view, <laughs> very, very well, you know, the, the thing is that, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it not shows, an accusation. It's a systemic problem. It's, 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 a systemic, it's, a, it's a systemic problem. And, um, you know, arguably it all comes from, um, you know, the declaration of independence and, uh, you know, this, this phrase, the pursuit of happiness. And, um, um, you know, people have this, um, like, you know, eat, play, eat, pray, love mindset, right? And uh, even people who aren't 43-year-old wine ants. And, um, you know, and the 43-year-old wine ant phenomenon is just the result of, you know, this this condition lasting too long, you know? Um, and um, the, you know, the funny thing is, is like, is a, it's like, you know, there's no better way to explain this than sort of the feeling of, of like, traveling as, as, as being a parent, right? Because, um, you know, let's say I, you know, go to Rome, right? Um, you know, the idea of going to Rome as, or, you know, 
I, I never, no, I was in Rome as an, as an individual, uh, you know, the idea of, but it was like a business thing. So I didn't get to see much of Rome, but the idea of being, you know, in Rome as like a single tourist is one thing. The idea of being in Rome uh, with your wife is a much better and much funner thing in every possible respect. And then when you have like a two-year-old, you're like, wow, I could be with my, in Rome with my wife, or I would be in Rome with my wife and this screaming monster, right? You know, <laughs> and wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just like stroll around without the screaming monster. And then when you're like, you know, um, at a, a certain point that flips around and now you're like, wow, you know, the only reason it's fun to go to Rome is to like show my 10-year-old Rome, right? You know, and, and have her be amazed by that. Um, and, and I would be like, why would we want to go to Rome without our kids, right? That's ridiculous, right? It would be so boring. Like, what would you do? We're like, oh, painting, cool painting. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, um, and so, you know, having that, uh, you know, certainly that idea of, of like parenting and, um, you know, just exposes you to a completely different sense of kind of the purpose of existence. And then, you know, once you're a parent, you basically look back at your single friends and you're just like, oh, I see your purpose is to, in life is to have uh, fun. Well, uh, have fun with that, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, they have, they have you know, a lot of good drugs these days you can take, uh, you know, I, and, and, and so like that leads to, you know, this idea, I mean, the people who wrote pursuit of happiness didn't even really mean it this way. Right. You know, they meant, you know, you know, by happiness, they really meant human fulfillment. They didn't mean, you know, um, um, you know, debauchery. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah. Much more Aristotle, <laughs> less, uh, less yeah, only yeah, fans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> less, less, <laughs> less Marquis de Sade. Right. You know, and, <laughs> and so essentially, um, you know, this vision of the purpose of life and community has really been transformed into the vision of the Marquis de Sade. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, trends in um, uh, the today that the Marquis would be really very happy with. Um, and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, we're, we're basically living in, uh, you know, uh, um, um, Pasolini's solo, you know, more and more every day, right? You know, and, um, yeah, at, the, at least ways, they knew. Not another. At least they knew yeah. that you would turn into like a pillar of salt and, you know, they, they had that in the back of their yeah. mind. Now we need to normalize yeah, yeah. it, you know, don't now even we, now, flinch. Now, oh, no. Yeah. The, you know, the devil, the devil, the devil needs you to go even farther. Right. And 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 so, like, when I look at, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it's like earlier you, you asked about, you know, religion. I think it's it's very difficult for a person with a postmodern upbringing to become religious, I think uh, what they should do is, uh, you know, the, uh, the you know their first step is uh, is you know to learn to actually respect it, um, and you know at least to you know if, if you're going to have to be an atheist, don't don't at least be an anti-theist, right? Um, and and that's a that's that alone is a huge step, right? You know, and then to actually um, um, to sort of, you know, to even be able to learn from religious traditions, uh, you know, there's a, a, a famous event where Oriana Falacci, you know, Falacci, the, uh, the famous Italian journalist, uh, you know, mm -hmm. went to you know, interview, uh, I think it was based, John Paul very II. Based. Yeah, very, very, very based, who became very based, but, you know, in earlier life was very radical. Um, you know, she goes to interview, I think it's, uh, it's either Benedict or John Paul II, I think it's John Paul II. And uh, she's like, well, you know, I'm just a complete fucking atheist, you know, uh, uh, I don't believe in God at all. What what the fuck should I do? And she's like, he's like, child, 
just act as if you did. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> LARPing, LARPing. I'm a proponent of yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty smooth, right? You know, like that's like Dalai Lama tier, right? And um, um, the, uh, um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's a further step, uh, you know, and then, you know, to sort of, um, to actually sort of get over yourself and kind of stop believing that the modern world has or even really can discover a way to live which is you know thanks to our fabulous luxuries um you know revises the lessons of 3000 years of classical civilization uh is just ridiculous and and a lot of people go through their life living this way and certainly a lot of women go through their lives you know basically um you know, past their past their fertile years, and you know, most women still have kids too late, um, and um, you know, but at least they have some at all, and and yeah, I, I I that's just that's totally an element of this modern condition, and it's a result of, you know, the sort of, I mean, you know, the 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 status functions of of uh, the twentieth century where you're essentially gaining all of the status, which is suddenly no longer social, but professional status. So a woman who is actually just a, a matriarch has no status uh, in this regime, whereas actually, there are no matriarchs. As the word, ma as the word matriarch implies, actually, uh, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was actually a thing. Like people wouldn't have that word if it like, you know, didn't, didn't exist, you know, uh, Lady Catherine de Bourgh or like whatever, right. You know, like, you ain't fucking with her and um, Livia Soprano even. Right. You know, and um, you know, these are, these are real characters. And so, you know, you know, people, I mean, women are relentless status chasers anyway, let's be frank. Right. And so that's really, I think done a lot of, a lot of damage in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I so think probably, for, probably the answer you expected, but uh, for, for women, it used to be that you used to chase someone else's status and that was, that was enough. But now, you know, you kind of have to do double duty, which is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, quite, no, no. quite the strain. Um, yeah. Related to this, um, you are a married man. I am a married woman. We've, we've made it, we've made it on the other side, obviously, you know, Excellent. life is long and we'll see, but uh, what people want to know, do you have any recommendations on how people can find a mate? Because, you know, being, our profit maybe have, you have something to say about I, I, this um um i, I you know i think that uh, i have none but i but i, I think the uh, uh i'll venture one anyway which is that um you know the most important thing is filtering out the inappropriate um and um the uh, uh you know the 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 you know there are different you know, human personality types and different human mating types, really. And especially among women, I think men are much more consistent and women are much more different. And so there's a kind of, uh, you know, for men, you know, there's a very different, um, um, you know, sort of sort of wife psychology is kind of should be instantly recognizable as a kind of basedness in the sort of most, not even necessarily political, but kind of most emotional sense of the word. The women you're going to have problematic relationships with guys are women who are needy uh, or like broken in, in various ways. You, you definitely want to kind of steer clearer of that. And, um, um, and that's like, you know, I mean, 
for men, the most important thing is just self-confidence. Uh, you know, like self-confidence is what women want. Uh, there are other things, but they're all much smaller. I can confirm that that's, <laughs> um, that's essentially it. There's nothing else. <laughs> there's basically nothing else. And, and, um, um, the um and and so you know just 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 be excellent uh you know um <laughs> for uh for for women uh you know uh, resist your uh resist your uh urge to insist on bad boys i don't know i mean uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> um um and and you know and the other thing i mean uh, you know it really is it really is true that um uh, unfortunately but sadly i think my experience is that sexual experience is damaging for a woman in a way that it's not necessarily damaging for men, like psychologically. And, um, you know, that's like, you can just, you can tell women who basically um, have just gotten too obsessed with that lifestyle. They have a different look in their eyes and it's just not a very healthy look. And yeah it, it's 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 a it vicious it's a vicious circle yeah and that's the thing you know the, the more you hung up in that lifestyle the harder it is to get out because people see yeah. it it's it's a it's yeah. a look yeah. it's a sparkle it's an anti-sparkle the hard, eye, the hard eyes the hard the hard eyes yeah yeah no it's 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 a it's a terrible thing yeah um, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry to <laughs> this is a bit of a black pill but with probably like three women watching this so it's all fine um <laughs> <laughs> Um, in uh, terms of, uh, yeah, I'm always in, political. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wish, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be the, uh, you know, the, the, to reach out to the female community to, you know, step into fringe right wing politics with me. And well, how, 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 Alex, how, how, Alex, if I ask, did you, uh, if I may ask, did you get a uh, red pill as it were like what the, oh, <laughs> since you're asking, um, I, uh, actually, I mean, it, it took it took a it took a while. It probably started about ten years ago. I read the the blank slate, and that kind of threw me for a loop. I was like, "Whoa!" Because mm -hmm. I, I I had like a gender studies degree, so you could imagine what was what was floating around in my head. Did you ever, um, did you ever study in the UK or the US? Did you? Uh... No, I've 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 lived in the UK for five years, but that was during my working years. And I I studied at the Austrian School of Economics, and then I studied in, <laughs> in Spain at another economics thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did diversity management and all sorts of trendy shit that was, that was cool back then. Right. And, you know, right. um, and then, uh, somehow through a forum, I found Nick land through Nick land. I found uh, qualified reservations about like four or five right. years ago. Uh, and then, you know, I was a totally, you know, <laughs> totally lost case. So that's, that's, yeah. you know, here we are <laughs> many, many such cases. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so girls if you're listening that's, that's, that's all you 12 of you <laughs> exactly all 12, 12 is nice thank you um related to the family subject um you know you you're you have children i am in the process of, mm -hmm. of creating life myself um oh congratulations thank you. <laughs> do you have a do you have a do you have a due date do you have a uh... yeah it's in in july so at the beginning of july Quite, you know, yeah, quite soon. I'm cool. expanding as we as yeah. we speak. So, um, homeschooling, or should should I give my children, you know, the Lord of the Flies treatment and just send them to a public school and you know see them? See it them. depends on it depends on the parents. It depends on the kids. It depends on every everything in the situation. You know, we're homeschooling now. We had them in a private school. Uh, language immersion is is an excellent thing. Uh, you know, 
my kids speak Chinese, which is, uh, you know, advantageous, I feel. Um, and we've been keeping that up with, in homeschooling and various things. Um, the, uh, despite the, the corona insanity, obviously homeschooling is far superior in the, in the corona world. Uh, hopefully we won't remain in, in that world. Um, the, um, the thing that, uh, you know, in a way my answer is, is sort of related to this, which is, uh, I'll answer a question that a lot of fellow parents ask me, which is basically how, you know, do you teach your kids, uh, you know, in this world in which this insanity is pumped into their brains? And I think a lot of the reasons that parents opt for homeschooling is to basically prevent that process. And the way and I understand that it and and of course it varies for every child and you'll know sort of how rebellious your child is. Uh, you know, I always joke that one of my children is in is a Jew and the other one is an Aryan, uh, you know, because they have different <laughs> levels of rebelliousness. Um, and, um, um, you know, the, but they're, they're both, you know, rebelliousness definitely runs in my family. So they both have a fair component of it. So the thing is that uh, this might not work for some kids. So, you know, any parenting advice should include the phrase, this should not, might not work for some kids. Um, the thing that you can do is basically imagine that you're living in a Catholic country, but you're an atheist or a fucking Jew or something like that, right? You know, I was in this situation, right? Um, because I was in, um, um, when I, my father was posted to Cyprus, I was in Nicosia and I went to the English school, which was a sort of odd choice because it was a faux British public school rather than the American school. Um, and we not only did we wear uniforms, we had to sing Anglican hymns every morning. And RI, which meant religious instruction, was on the menu, you know, uh, on the schedule. Uh, they finally decided that for RI, I would get to sit in the library, which I think was probably the best <laughs> choice uh, <laughs> in several different respects. Um, you know, but imagine that you're sending your you're living in a super Catholic country. You're sending your child to a Catholic school. Um, but you're not actually Catholics and you're not giving them any Catholic indoctrination at home. Um, this person, this child is not going to grow up believing that the wafer actually turns into Jesus in your mouth. He's, that is not going to happen. He'll just be like, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> and if it is his world that is reinforced on all sides, absolutely. He will deeply internalize whatever sort of religious absurdities, um, you know, he's asked to believe. And, um, you know, of, of course, an absurdity is this to all Catholics listening. An absurdity is the same thing as, as a miracle, um, as, as Hume pointed out. Right. You know, and so the question is, does he believe in miracles? Does he have faith? And if this faith, whether it's Catholicism or wokeism, is installed only at school, but not at home, that is a recipe for the child to learn their own form of doubt. Because, you know, and so you're actually teaching them to think skeptically in a way where it's not apparent to anyone that you're doing this. And so, you know, what happens is the, ch the child starts to see their own cracks in this and it's never reinforced mm -hmm. at home. And so they're just like, wait a second. And then eventually they sort of they start driving the process, really. And and. And, and then, you know, at a certain point, you're sort of switch over to the point where, where you really have to worry to, to worry about with them is teaching them how to control the power level, which is a much better problem. It's a, still a hard problem, but it's a much better problem than the other problem. Right. And so, you know, that way of basically saying, OK, I'm going to expose you to all that society believes in 
has a couple of different benefits. The first one is they learn to hide their power level. They learn to basically conform. They learn to basically behave like all the other kids. Very important life skill. Um, and secondly, they, um, you know, they develop these doubts because they're seeing these absurdities and they're not being told to believe them at home. And so that's essentially, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is just raise them in a goddamn bubble and like <laughs> let them know that the world outside is the pit, right? You know, and um, um, to not coin a phrase, right? And um, um, the, um, you know, that's that's an approach which I believe works for some people. Of course, you know, it's it's a little more of a high wire game in some senses. You know, the other thing about taking the approach, you know, that I advocated and that I've taken is sort of your worst case scenario is that your child ends up a true believer, um, which is going to be potentially pretty shitty for your relationship with them. However, for them, it might be ideal. Right. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, you've got a kind of win-win situation going on when you do that. And, you know, uh, the more important thing about homeschooling versus public schooling is just the incredibly shitty quality of the schooling that you'll get, which is probably, honestly, a lot yeah. better in Romania in some ways. Um, yeah, it depends. Yeah, it, it used yeah. to be. It used to be. It's like it's the yeah. subject's yeah. the same entropy as everywhere. And yeah. It's... Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the things the Soviet system was good at. Right. And um, um, yeah, you, you need say they were... <laughs> centralized control for some things. Well, math, they apparently. Were a lot, they, they, were, they were bad at a lot of things, but math was not one of them. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I, that was that was a cool yeah. thing about our, our school, even when I was there. You know, we had these Olympics. And even though the the, the quality uh -huh. of the schooling in general was kind of you know, shitty, you know, post transition, post communism style, the Olympics sure. were really hardcore because the teachers would kind of take you apart and said, "Oh, you're you're high potential. Okay, you're going to the Olympics." So they would you essentially have parallel class and they teach you yeah. whatever you wanted to to learn. So yeah, wow. I don't I don't know if that's uh, and were still you going on, the, on. Were you on the Were you on the Olympic? Were you I was on, on several you, several uh, Olympics, but I have to say I wasn't on the on the really cool ones, on the physics Olympics. and math ones. Yeah, no, I was at the biology Olympics. I, I was the national biology Olympics girl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, 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 but, yeah, yeah. But that's I mean, you know, you must have grown up with sort of all of these kind of remnants of the Soviet system around you, even though you never sort of experienced them as as you know kind of directly um but you must yeah uh, it's like a haunt it was a haunted place it was haunted by this whole this idea of communism no one really knew exactly what communism was we we just called right. communism old stuff like the, the apartment blocks communist the old teachers yeah. that were like you know wearing a weird looking ill-fitted suit they're communist so it was just yeah. a, a thing but in a way you're everything was kind of communist because you were learning from like communist material. Like I, I went to a German oh, yeah, school yeah. and it had like all, like it was all about the grain quota and you know, that, you know, uh, Stefan's mother is a heroin mother because she's like, yeah. she, she brought <laughs> yeah, in yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the quota from the, from the grain field and all this stuff. So it was just like kind of strange. And they just hadn't cleared all that stuff out yet, which I'm sure they have now. And yeah, and yeah no, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I, when I was in, in, in that school in Cyprus, we got this mix. It was a strange mix of like old, you know, pre-war English tradition, you know, where you memorize, you know, a poem by Shelley or whatever. And then you had these textbooks that were like, um, you know, 1970s Fabian Red Brick University British textbooks, you know, where, um, which were like pure, pure new left. 
and um, um, it was sort of strange encountering this, you know, like these are very different things. Like, what's going on here, right? You know, and yeah, but I, it I mean, this does is like help. full Har Harry Potter. There are houses, you know, we're organized into houses, right? You do, know? do you think <laughs> it was, uh, it was like a, it, it added to your, you know, essentially almost automatically dissident perspective to have you know, grown up in these weird liminal spaces and oh, seeing... sure. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, the, the, um, you know, Cyprus was so strange because they had this strange ethnic conflict. Right. And, um, you know, one day, um, I'm, I guess 11 and I go to school and, uh, you know, we don't have the internet there. I hadn't checked the news and, um, I wind up in class and I'm in, you know, the English school is a somewhat international school, but it, it includes a lot of just like the international class of Cypriots, right? So there's still Cypriots and I go to school and it turns out that uh, Turkish Cyprus has declared independence. So this is uh, 83, 84, something like that. So uh, obviously there's going to be no school today. Uh, obviously school is going to turn into a demonstration, which is going to turn into a riot. And I was all for going with the demonstration. My brother grabs me and he's like, no, we're calling home. <laughs> Man. Uh, but I'm like, holy shit man let's kill the Turks, right you know and and and, um, and you sort of just see you know the 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 emotion of being in you know one of those uh, one of those riots one of those mobs you've seen of course all the videos from uh, old romania with uh, the hole cut out of the flag and uh you know it got uh it got intense there for a while, but it's still, you know, even those, even that movement on the scale of 20th century craziness is, is very, uh, is very small, you know, um, and, yeah. um, you know, so, so you're seeing, I mean, you're certainly seeing this, this kind of decline in energy, but, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, are you ready for the quick fire round <laughs> where I have uh, a, yeah. a few questions that, you know, you could just say yes, no to. All know, right. I'll try to, I'll, I'll try to keep, I'll try to keep it real. Curiosities, short. you know, right, number one, right. do you know who the real Satoshi Nakamoto is? Yes, no. No, okay. um, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Okay. Yeah. People I have a guess, but I'm hoping. not sure. I have a guess. I have a guess, but I'm not sure. Okay. You won't share that guess with us. No, I won't, but it's a common guess, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, do you own a sword? No. <laughs> Your diet and fitness regimen, very shortly. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Okay, like libertarian, I understand. <laughs> um, what toothpaste are you using, and is it still Tom's of Maine? It remains Tom's of Maine. I'll always <laughs> be a, a devoted Tom's of Maine user. Uh, you know, sometimes I can I can use the sweet sweet toothpaste if there's like I'm traveling and there's nothing else. But I'm all yeah. I don't know what Tom's of Maine is, but I'm also an anti sweet toothpaste person, so I, I agree. It has to be vile, or else it doesn't work. Um, yeah. Do you still believe Hitler was gay? Yes. Okay. No question. <laughs> uh, have you ever been in a room with Dan Crenshaw? Um, this is this is an interesting question it's from from Jeffrey Miller, the uh, the evolutionary uh, psychologist, biologist. Uh, will Martian okay. colonies have to be governed by a neo-cameralist or formalist structure to work at all, given the nature, uh, given the danger of schisms on a hostile planet? I, you know, the problem is I can't really see Martian colonies as very realistic anyway, so I can't really answer that question because it's not like this answer, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not into it either. So uh, try, next... try, try Antarctica first. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next ones are the simple base or cringe. Dune, base or cringe. Goon? Dune, the in... novel book. Oh, Dune. Book. Dune. Oh, yeah. Dune. Yes, Dune. Dune. Dune is very based. Very based. Good. Mormons, based or cringe. Based. Eric Weinstein, based or cringe. 
I'm going to decline the answer. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think that was that was a quick run. I really I really like it. All right. And yeah, I mean the the, the last question before. The question we're asking you to recommend us a book. You've already recommended several, but maybe you have one that's you know juicy, and then maybe if you've kept, you've held it back, is um, do we have a, what's what's your best white pill? Is there like some 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 hopeful narrative that we can we can claw onto to you know see us through? This? I think I think I think I think the most the most hopeful narrative that I have is essentially the. Um, the weakening of political commitment in the 21st century and, you know, the sort of increasing resemblance of the citizens of that, you know, century to, you know, the sort of normal people of all times who are completely depoliticized has pros as well as cons. Um, its cons are obviously you're looking for the energy, you know, of some kind of resistance, right? You know, as these like, you know, incredible atrocities are being like, you know, perpetrated on the citizens. I was reading the other day that I don't can't trust the statistic completely, but of like, they're like, yeah, of like new jobs created in the last year, like two thirds are going to non-citizens. I mean, it's just like that would have driven the Americans of a hundred years ago, just like completely bananas. Right. Um, and, and the uh, completely bananas. And so you sort of lack this, like this idea of collective self-interest is even, you know, considered contemptible. And so the thing is when you're imagining sort of conditioning your regime change on kind of a change in collective self-interest like this, or, or an aggregation of collective self-interest into a kind of force, and you realize, wow, this force is much, much weaker than it used to be, then you're like, you know, you're really disappointed. And you, you forget that the force that is holding the regime in place is made up of the same material. And just as, you know, the commitment to your sort of um, side is becoming weaker. So is the commitment to their side. People, you know, people's faith in their institutions is like headed. No, it's not a rock bottom. Oh, it's got quite a ways to go. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, is it going up? No, it's not going up. Yeah. My God, you know. And and so the thing is that, you know, there's this famous physics analogy of the, uh, um, the irresistible force and the immovable object. And in many ways, you're looking at the negligible force against the insubstantial object, which is still an interesting conflict. It's just a conflict that is happening on a very different scale than the one you're thinking of. It's like, you know, my favorite part of, um, which of course was not shown in those terrible movies of the Lord of the Rings is of course the scouring of the Shire in which uh, in this marvelous political allegory in which Tolkien denies is a political allegory. Uh, he basically has a sort of own vision of political restoration as a somewhat violent thing, but very, very happy. And on just this tremendously smaller and more local scale than this great struggle against evil. They're just like, no, we're just not going to have any more of you evil fucks. <laughs> right. You know, um, um, you know, Peter Jackson just can't film that because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it, would be, uh, it would be unacceptable. Um, you know, and so in a way, you're looking at a regime that is very, very heavy, but is not bolted to its foundations in a way that sort of anyone expects. And so there are a lot of things that can basically knock. Humpty Dumpty is not attached to the wall. 
And, you know, just as your ability to push on Humpty Dumpty is, is, is rusting away, so are Humpty, so are the things that attaches Humpty Dumpty to the wall. And, you know, as soon as you can get to a situation where you can like, okay, we are going to push Humpty Dumpty over. And you're just like, number one, you know, is, hum is Humpty Dumpty made of rubber or is he made of clay? If you push him over, is he going to bounce back up and go standing back on the wall, give you a smile, and then order all the king's men to like cut you to pieces? Or is he going <laughs> to lie there in a, in a pile of clay on, you know, on the ground? And you look at this Humpty Dumpty and you're like, no one could create these institutions if they didn't exist. They wouldn't assemble them. You just how you can't even imagine it, right? You know, people don't have the mindset for institution building in that sense. And so one thing that people miss is they they sort of they think of all sort of this leftist energy, which is all sort of drawn from the power that leftism has. And they're like, wow, how will how will a regime, how will the next regime deal with this? Which is sort of like asking, you know, how will the Federal Republic of Germany deal with the Nazi werewolves? Well, <laughs> really didn't have a werewolf problem at all, as it turns out, right? And and that's because these heavily indoctrinated people, you know, who are much more well, I think their engagement, you know, their political engagement with with Nazism was much lower in forty five than in thirty three. It was probably much lower in thirty eight than in thirty three, um, you know. But it was still high by modern standards, and they're just like there's just absolutely no use in this bullshit. And you know, furthermore, realizing that there is absolutely no use in this bullshit brings it home in just like a devastating clarity what parts of it were always bullshit. And the thing is that when you see this thing in, in a pile of clay on the ground covered by this just like ridiculous race babble, you know, <laughs> you're just like, like, you know, one of my problems is, as a parent, um, you know, speaking of teaching my kids to hide their power level is, um, I don't know if you watch any English Premier League, but my son is kind of a Chad and a soccer player. <laughs> so we watch a lot of English Premier League and uh, he's a Chelsea fan. And um, um, the... Um, um, and 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 what they've done in the English Premier League since this summer, besides all the weird ass COVID shit, um, is they say a prayer before every game, and it's a prayer against racism. And um, what they do is is they vary the wording of it every time. They never say it the same way twice, so that it doesn't become rote. They're like a very important message, you know, like, and it's just so when you realize that that's what they're doing, it's so weird and so creepy and so Orwellian that of course, you know, any 10 year old is just going to find this hilarious. Right. And if he's not indoctrinated with kind of deep reverence for, for the faith. And so you just have this, this machine, which is just disenchanting people in this like cynical way. It's like, you know, there was this Barry Weiss story about, you know, kids at exclusive, uh, uh, exclusive prep schools in LA going full, full, double, triple woke squared. Right. And, you know, what some of the parents were complaining about, this wasn't in the story, but this was in some commentary I saw on it. They're like, the parents are like, yeah, this school is turning into an Alex P. Keaton factory. It's making our kids into Republicans. Right. <laughs> you know, And so, you know, the thing is, there's that's a that's a somewhat natural process. Right. You know, and and that's a process. That's the kind of process of decay that's very, very difficult for a system like this to counter. 
And, and that's not, you know, that's sort of the way, that's the way these things fall, where basically everybody realizes that nobody believes in the socialist miracle anymore, you know, and even the elites are just fucking sick of it. And that's when, you know, that's when Humpty Dumpty can just fall off the damn wall. And, yeah. you know, you want something better than a pile of clay. You want something else, you know, something has to sit on that wall, um, you know, and, and it's not going to be smart contracts, you know, but, um, the, uh, you know, that's the, that's the situation that you're in basically. Good answer. Solid answer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Solid answer. And, um, very, very heartening. It reminds me of this, uh, this book, uh, the, um, nothing to envy about lives in North Korea by, by Barbara Demick. It's just kind of the mm, stories, um, stories from you know people who managed to escape North Korea, and there was this um, the story when when the great leader uh, died, I think Kim Il Sung, you know, students in, in the courtyard were supposed to all you know start you know wailing and you know having all these fits, and then one of the students noticed that one of one of his colleagues was was wetting his his handkerchief and and making his face wet wow. so that yeah, so that yeah, it looked yeah. like he was crying and that was his you know that was kind of like a you know totalitarian red pill moment because they were like aha okay <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> everyone's yeah. Nobody, doing this nobody notices how many people are faking it and the more the like the you know the more that sense of weirdness grows basically the sort of more the feeling of like how refreshing it is when it breaks and so the more completely it can break essentially and you're still in a lot of ways when you compare our timeline to the world of eastern europe in a lot of ways you're still more in the 50s than in the 70s and 80s there's still a lot of true believers out there and and you know the true believers you know one of the most important things to do is kind of just to not exacerbate the true believers don't don't give them a reason. Don't give them any hope. Don't give them any struggle. Don't give them anything to latch onto. Yeah, just should, should, let them. Yeah. Should we? Should we expect that things just just happen a bit faster just because of the how information travels and you know you have these yes I moments. think I think we should I think we should I think we should like and you know shutting shutting those things down is really hard and you know there is definitely a zoomer gamer culture of just corrosive utter nihilistic cynicism. Uh, which I think is really beautiful and sweet. <laughs> and um, the, uh, um, um, uh, you know, and, and that, that generation, you know, coming up with that kind of post-millennial nihilism, you know, which is just like, you know, what it's the default belief system of living in a world that you just obviously cannot take seriously. You know, you're fucking Premier League with their prayers, prayers against racism yeah, or whatever. Uh, Gen X you know? on steroids. That's, that's Gen Gen X on steroids, you know, and it's like, it's like, I make a joke of it, you know, with, with, you know, with my son, I'm like, oh, wow, there's another black player on your team. You know, now you're really fighting back against racism, you know, <laughs> and, um, the, uh, you know, and, and like the idea that this is anything could ever be a real thing or refer to anything real in the real world is so remote to him. It's so like, you know, it's just has this, you know, like the thing is that when communist propaganda in like 1925 talks about the workers and the peasants, like there's this intense reality to it. And 1975, okay, yeah, there's still workers and peasants, but it's like, do they really think of themselves and that like the energy is gone and you're just, you're seeing that 
you know, these constructs basically don't change. They, you know, like the propaganda never changes. You're still like white supremacy as actually something that calls itself that was like literally been dead for 60 years, right? <laughs> you know, and like how how much more of like, you know, there are no actual witches can you get, right? And, and, um, and so it becomes this abstraction in which faith is demanded. And of course, you know, you can demand faith and abstractions from humans, but, you know, it becomes increasingly flimsy and it exists in this culture of just pervasive, corrosive irony, right? And, you know, everyone knows how to be ironic now. It's not something restricted to the cosmopolitan elites. It's universal. Like the spirit of basically Jewish mockery is everywhere. And that's a very corrosive <laughs> spirit, you know, and, Good job. And, and everyone knows how to do that now. And so, you know, everyone could be Voltaire. And and so it just like as soon as it's sort of, you know, the moment it becomes permissible to laugh at this stuff, it will become the laughing stock of the ages. And, you know, that's basically, it's working itself into that position. And, you know, as Napoleon said, um, I'd never interfere with your enemy when he's making a mistake. And, <laughs> and, I, and, and it's a mistake that it's making because it's not centralized. It's a mistake. It's this kind of autonomous drive that it has, which is the same drive that makes it kind of so tyrannical and evil, which eventually turns into a drive where it's driving itself really um, toward its own destruction. I mean, who, what central like party official would be like, okay, now, now it's time to go after Dr. Seuss. Now, you know, we will show the population a lesson by taking on Dr. Seuss. I mean, it's this like obvious own goal, yeah. right? And yet it can't be prevented from kicking itself into the goal. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that's my, that's my, that's my white pill for that's today. A, that's a very good white pill. I mean, it's, it's going to be the, the status games of the true believers that really do it in. Cause that's, that's where all this acceleration yeah. comes from. It's just, you know, like sure. blue haired, you know, weirdos trying to, trying to score points. And luckily. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and those things, those things basically were, were the freshness of those things, you know, sort of decreases over time and so you know the trump period was a very dark period because it basically let all these like wine ants pretend that they were actually members of the french resistance like you know okay you know you know comrade julie you know where should we plant the bomb <laughs> on the train tracks right you know and and um you know you you whack the gestapo guy over over the head with your frying pan and I'll, we'll cut up the body together right you know and and it was very romantic it was very um you know it was like in this simple way that too many women are prone to it to really, you know, like it sold them and, and it was a good sale. And, you know, when you don't have that, like, you know, suddenly you're all dressed up with nowhere to go. Like, it's like the emotional, like letdown is enormous. And I can't see what else is going to really generate that on, yeah. on a, the Boogaloo on boys. I hear the Boogaloo boys I hear with their Hawaiian, <laughs> with their Hawaiian shirts and their, their secret Boogaloo leader. Yeah. All uh, five you know, of I hear them. they have ranks. I hear, uh, yeah, I hear that. I have, they have, they have ranks like the KKK, but taken from Hawaiian legends. <laughs> Grand uh, wizard sorry. of the Boogaloo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm making dear FBI. I'm making all this stuff up as I go along. Right. Uh, um, 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 the, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's so, it's sort of grim and depressing. And the kind of grimmest, most depressing aspects of it just roll on and it gets really hard to excite. I mean, it's like imagine, you know, like, you know, 
kids these days, they go, they're six or seven or whatever, they go to an elementary school and they're given this propaganda that was just like mind-blowingly exciting to their grandmother, right? And just like changed their grandmother's life, like just revealed a new world to her, right? <laughs> and they're given this stuff as if it was ex as it's going to be as exciting as it to them as it was to grandma 60 years ago and it's just not and moreover they recognize it as something their grandmother is into and they're just like yeah okay <laughs> grandma shit time for more grandma shit right you know and and that's that's that creates as long as you know when there was a traditional world for those kids to push back against that still created energy, but that source of energy is just gone, right? And that's really the danger in kind of raising kids kind of between two worlds, is that if you give them something to push back against and to basically leverage, if they're naturally smart and rebellious, uh, as many, many children sadly are, um, um, the dumber ones are just easier, um, um, the, uh, they'll push back against, and, and any sorts of leverage they'll find is, is something that they'll use. And if you don't, if there's no source of that, there's no source of energy, then you basically don't have any, there's sort of no positive advantage associated with these dumb ideas. And people look, just look at them and they're like, oh, that's dumb. I think that right you know and 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 that's a that's a much healthier state of mind so that's my kind of jujitsu method uh uh you know my my woke my 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 post woke uh, a friend of mine keeps telling me to say post woke rather than anti woke which I think is much much better um that's my method yeah I, so. I like this method and it, interestingly and you know you've come to the same conclusion as my husband because he was just saying yeah you're not gonna lock our children in a bunker it's you're you're just yeah, gonna create no, no. total rebels they're gonna you know be transgender at eight if you if you yeah, do that yeah. so yeah, yeah. but if, but if they're if they're sent to school and they basically you know receive all of this shit and you know basically as a parent the way the way i do it is just you know it's sort of difficult you know as especially when it becomes your profession. But I basically just pretend not to be interested in like politics at all. I'm just like, you know, I don't, you know, I, whenever the subject would come up, I would just be completely neutral on it. I'd be like, oh yeah, how about those Redskins, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and that's like, you know, that, that, teaches, that teaches kids, again, when you don't have that emotional energy associated with the subject, then this pablum is just much more easily recognizable as as what it is and they just they just vomit it up basically um and and that's uh i'm sure it won't work for every kid but yeah we'll just we'll just have to see what type of what what this one's made of so we'll see how he reacts all right all right, all right. Boy, boy a boy a boy i take it or yeah yeah it's, not, it's a boy yeah. for firstborn son everyone's really happy about yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what that's that's what it should be all right are we done here are we, yeah uh... yeah we are uh i just want to get your last recommendation of a subversive thinker i mean you've uh, given tons a recommendation of a subversive thinker uh you know what century do you do you want a century uh... <laughs> and what do you be like the, the subversive sommelier you know whoever, whoever yeah you think yeah is yeah good. okay okay um um you know i think that um um people really haven't read enough george fitzhugh 
Uh, George Fitzhugh is, um, you know, he's, I always recommend Carlyle. He's a contemporary of Carlyle, but he's an American. He's a Southerner. Um, and he's like the, he's the sort of core theorist of, of, of what um, Louis Hartz called the reactionary enlightenment. Louis Hartz writing as a liberal back in the 50s called the reactionary enlightenment of the 19th century. Um, and he's essentially, you know, some people will basically take Fitzhugh's ideology of, as, as that of the, the Old South, which is by no means the case. The Old South really saw themselves as the heirs of the Glorious Revolution. It was people like Fitzhugh who were like, no, actually, we're undoing the whole thing here. That's what we should be doing. That's not what they actually were doing. And, and Fitzhugh is also a wonderful writer. He's really, you know, he's going to like remind you of like a pro-slavery Hunter S. Thompson, you know. Um, and, um, My kind of guy. And, 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 and so, you know, the thing is, uh, you know, you've never really, you know, nobody's ever really sort of been exposed to a kind of writer of this. And, and his, his, you know, uh, he, as a philosopher, he's, he's really much deeper than Hunter S. Thompson. But as a writer, um, you know, he has a kind of similar sense of fun in some ways in a 19th century sense. Um, and, you know, whether or not you agree with Fitzhugh or what you agree with Fitzhugh on, um, you'll basically find um, you're like, wow, uh, you know, I know I've, I've never read anything like this. And, and that's, you know, like, like that's an experience you shouldn't be missed. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah. OK, let's let's, uh, you know, and then if you if you're interested in Fitzhugh, you can follow up with um, uh, Richard Weaver's uh, The Southern Tradition at Bay, which is written in, in the 1930s. And it's kind of a history of that stuff. And then there's there's actually a modern work. I think I may have it here i can't find it uh no it's in a different bookcase um there's there's a modern um i'm unfortunately forgetting the name of but there's there's actually a a, a survey of the old southern tradition you'll find it quickly if you google for it by a modern historian that's actually quite good um you know so you know you gotta let the devil have his due um but uh, but yeah if you you know that that world and um for a woman, actually, I had my daughter uh, recommend um, all, all 12 of you out there, possibly two, or maybe just one. I had my daughter uh, read, uh, actually, Mary Chestnut's diary. She was a, um, a Southern uh, Southern lady, very literate and, uh, and witty as well, uh, who kept a diary during the war. And that's a fun uh, that's a fun perspective to be exposed to. Oh, excellent. Uh, so. Excellent. And excellent. Uh, yeah, before I let you go, uh, tell us about the, the Substack or any other projects you're working on that you want people to talk about. Um, well, my, my, my Substack is uh, graymirror.substack.com. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm a satisfied customer of Substack. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I've, I've actually like, I, you know, I, I've, I have a reasonable level of faith in that, in that company. And uh, the, um, you know, they're definitely, you know, it's not like Blogger, you know, where like it's sort of this, this accident of their their business you know their their business is essentially creating a new discourse and and i think they i think they know that um and um um you know that disc they want that discourse to be as wide as possible and it's really fucking with people's heads which is great <laughs> um and uh yeah so so basically you know that you know what, what you get if you subscribe to gray mirror is um essentially what i'm doing is when i have sort of new material or, or new ideas i generally paywall those and when i'm kind of restating ideas i've stated in the past um it's sort of more likely to be free walled um, the end result is basically a book, you froze there for a second, is basically a book which is um, kind of intended to be the, um, you know, the, 
a little more of an operating manual for what comes next. Um, so I think it'll be a fun book and, uh, we'll see, uh, we'll see if anyone buys it or if anyone will let me sell it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. all right. Are we, are, yeah, are we done here? Are we that's, done? We're, we're done here. We're, we're wrapping. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>